Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Bruce McClelland, CEO of Ribbon Communications, a global communications and network solutions provider that works with service providers and enterprises. We discuss the specific challenges rural operators are facing in delivering high-speed broadband and what the government can do about it, plus the outcome of the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund auction and more. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nicole. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. So to start off, why don't you just tell me a little bit about Ribbon Communications? Um, where are you active and what type of operators does your company typically work with? Yeah, well, uh, Ribbon is a, a communications technology company. Uh, been around for 25 years under different names over the years. And, um, you know, the new name today came about four years ago with the merger of two other companies. So we're not necessarily a, a household name, but we support a lot of households out there today. Um, you know, like many tech companies, we've come together through different companies over the years through M&A, and we provide uh, a variety of different hardware and software products and services to enable both voice and data communications. And, uh, you know, we work with large service providers like Verizon and Comcast and Charter and AT&T, uh, but we also work with a whole variety of smaller regional service providers, um, what were traditionally called IOCs back in the day. Uh, smaller cable companies, those sorts of things. Um, we also do quite a bit of work with alternative providers like uh, electric co-ops and energy companies, local municipalities. Uh, yeah, so a whole variety of different types of customers today. So um, let's talk a little bit about the, you, you mentioned you work with some more smaller, I assume more rural, rurally located providers. So um, what do you see as the primary challenges that are preventing full coverage and access in the rural communities where you work? Um, and if you're able to provide an example from on the ground, even better, just to help it live for us a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it all kind of starts with economics at the end of the day. You know, the, uh, you know, the metro areas tend to have a lot more attention, a lot more coverage just because of the economics of being able to provide service to more dense urban areas. And then as you move out into more rural areas, it's just more challenging economically. And, you know, I personally grew up in Canada, up in Saskatchewan, in kind of the middle of nowhere on a small farm. And, you know, trying to get uh, broadband coverage there was impossible, right? I mean, it just wasn't economic. So I think a lot of it starts with that. And, of course, the world's changing with new technology and, uh, you know, a whole variety of different ways to try and uh, address the issue. But, uh, you know, three three examples that... Um, come to mind with customers we worked with here in the last six months here in the U.S. Uh, Alabama uh, Rural Electric Co-op, Tota Communications, who does business in Kansas and Oklahoma, and Eastern Slope Rural Telephone in Colorado, you know, all three of them offering a unified set of services to to the rural, rural parts of America, basically. And they all face similar issues with bottlenecks in kind of legacy technology that they had deployed. And obviously with the, the shift to work from home and, and unified communications, all these you know, video applications we're all using rapidly exceeding their capacity. And uh, you know, we worked with all three of those to migrate from legacy TDM or Sonnet capabilities over to a more modern DWDM fiber background. 
uh, backbone. And, and that's pretty satisfying to be able to work with you know, smaller operators like that and really make an impact and make a difference. And uh, you know, that multiply that by 100 right across rural America today. Right, right. So let's get into um, the economics a little bit more, because that when you unpack that, that comes down to a few things um, in terms of the large providers. You know, they they have uh, a pretty specific set of, of goals and it often doesn't enable them to get deep into the heart of rural places to expand fiber. With the smaller providers, um, it's more doable, but they often get left out of a lot of uh, government funding and such. So what do you see as the solution or or even the main impediment to helping the providers who actually can reach um, the communities that are left out uh, be able to do so? Yeah, so certainly uh, in in providing these types of services, scale really matters. <laughs> and so you see the larger providers, you know, really able to stretch their dollars further um, and, and get to a broader range of customers. Uh, but again, when you get out into rural America, where you maybe only have a home every half a mile, the economics are pretty daunting. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- I think there's a variety of solutions. Some of it is government assistance. Some of it is government programs. Uh, some of it's new technology that makes it more cost effective to, uh, you know, to provide access. And so I think uh, it's not one size fits all. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of different, um, uh, I think, business approaches as well with co-ops coming together to leverage their scale. Good example, uh, NRTC, National Rural Telephone Cooperative, you know, has hundreds of members and they're really able to use that scale from a purchasing power, buying power perspective. And then also kind of pooling together their projects and kind of coordinating and, uh, and, and making the dollars you know, stretch further as well. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, it's not a one size fits all uh, approach, right? And I think that that's uh, especially rings true for people who work in rural areas. A lot of people talk about a need for a national fiber network, but others suggest that maybe that's not uh, rational for for certain parts of the country. So what do you see as the right combination of technologies for closing the digital divide in the hardest to reach areas of the U.S.? Yeah, so a lot of it depends on, of course, you know, the circumstance and, and, uh, you know, if you're in a completely greenfield situation where there is no existing infrastructure, you know, I think the tendency is to go towards more fiber, you know, as much fiber as possible. If you're going to, if you're going to, you know, dig up a street, plow, a, you know, a hole in the ground or a string cable, you know, fiber, it's hard to beat fiber for a whole bunch of, you know, technical reasons. Um, but you're obviously seeing a lot more um, deployment now of wireless technology as well. And, you know, as wireless technology gets better, it starts to compare to fiber or HSC networks. But the bar keeps moving as well. <laughs> you know, so, you know, what used to be broadband is no longer broadband. One megabit's not enough. Ten megabit's not enough. Now 100 megabits is kind of, you know, table stakes. And so... You know, you can stretch wireless technology to cover that uh, in certain environments where you don't have a lot of interference or you don't have a lot of users sharing the same spectrum. Um, but in other cases, you know, it's just not really doable. And so you end up with more of a, you know, a fiber uh, rich infrastructure. Um, my previous company, Eris, we had a lot of experience around hybrid fiber coax networks. And that's a very robust technology. It takes advantage of both fiber infrastructure and coax. And, uh, you know, coax tends to be a much more uh, robust technology. Uh, you know, you can run power over it and, 
you know, that, that's a great alternative if you've got existing networks that you can leverage and kind of continually upgrade the technology. Um, you know, I do think, I think the future is wireless. The future is mobile. I mean, mobile is such a, uh, you know, that value proposition of being able to be mobile with your, with your devices is a big deal. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of new technologies in the pipeline that basically take spectrum and, um, and, and share it more effectively, you know, create concentrated signals that don't interfere with each other. And the future of wireless is really, really exciting. Um, so I would love to get your perspective on government policy. I'm wondering if you think that existing government policy makes it easier or harder for the um, rural operators that you work with to do their jobs. Um, and uh, it, what would you like to see in terms of policy changes from our new presidential administration and um, or even on the state level? Yeah, so, you know, in 2020, I took advantage of kind of the lockdown to uh, reach out to as many representatives in Washington as I could and had a whole series of, of uh, meetings with their staff, partly to raise the visibility of the work that Ribbon's doing, but also to kind of gauge the tone in Washington on a, on a variety of topics, including rural broadband. You know, in particular, I focused on the Senate and House Energy and Commerce Committees, you know, where a lot of the allocation of funding comes uh, the appropriation committees, the FCC commissioner offices, even policy uh, um, uh, apparatus like NTIA and the National Economic Council. And then also met with uh, local representatives, particularly in the areas across the U.S. where we have employees and are more present. So covered a lot of ground, talked to policymakers, regulators, funding agencies, you know, you name it, which was really interesting. So, you know, a, a few takeaways from that, I guess I would say... Um, Everyone agrees on how important communications is <laughs> and broadband access. There is no debate. Everybody, you know, emphasizes their support behind that. And I think everyone agrees that the government has a role in setting the regulatory framework and creating a level playing field, creating incentives and funding, and how important security is. So it's a very bipartisan topic. However, like all topics, politics then start to enter, and that is such a big barrier to getting anything done. Um, you know, good examples, the rip and replace program around the Huawei technology within particularly rural America. And, um, you know, everybody agrees that that's a good security initiative to get done. When you talk to the operators that have that technology deployed, they agree as well, all things being equal, they would like to move move off the platforms, but the technology works well. Uh, they got good support and uh, it was cost effective. <laughs> and so they're just not gonna go out and do it without you know, some assistance doing it. But it's really been challenging to, even on a, a topic like that, that everyone agrees to get the funding earmarked and, and get it uh, moving. You know, we're seeing more momentum around it now, but even today, you know, it's, uh, it's not getting done yet. It's still a, a barrier. So, um, so those are issues that are just reality that we've got to work hard on. You know, you then get to, uh, Nicole, local government as well, right? And local government wants to move faster. I mean, these are their constituents <laughs> and they see the issue on a regular basis, right? They see the challenges in education uh, and access and everything. Uh, and their hearts are in the right place. Although if you start creating a bunch of local programs as well that are either you know, in conflict or overlapping with the federal programs, as a technology supplier, it gets to be a real confusing mess at that point. 
So, you know, I tried to encourage everyone to kind of work within the frameworks that we have. Let's, let's focus on accelerating what we have, uh, simplifying the paperwork behind it and moving more quickly. So just keeping with government stuff for a couple more minutes, uh, I'd love to get your take on the outcome of the Rural Digital Opportunity um, Fund uh, and uh, the winners from that and how you see that maybe helping some of the operators you work with and the projects they have planned for the year ahead or just your take on how it might actually help rural America. Well, we're pretty excited about it. Um, you know, if you see the list of successful bidders, it's, it's pretty broad based. I mean, it's it covers a lot of different companies. There is a concentration with a number of larger operators, and that's probably a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, having the larger operators like Charter involved, I think will, you know, the, the operational nature of a company like that is amazing. <laughs> so I think they can go quickly and, and, and really make an impact. But then we've got a bunch of new entrants, you know, companies that have been in business a little less like a NextLink or an LTD broadband um, and coming at it with different technology, a different approach. You've got electric co-ops involved and even SpaceX. So you've got you've covered a lot of ground here um, and a broad set of technologies. Um, and ultimately, I think that's good. I don't think the government should be in the business of specifying winning and losing technologies. Uh, but this is going to be a big test. Uh, can new technologies, kind of the wireless technologies, some of the satellite technologies, can they really deliver the level of service that's required to compete um, and uh, and do as good a job as traditional HSC or optical? Um, and we're we're playing with taxpayers' dollars here, <laughs> so I think it's really important, you know, that we pay attention to this and we really measure with facts and data the success and then be ready to pivot quickly and make changes as we need to, um, depending on the success of that. Yeah. Now, the other thing that really impacts um, uh, accessibility and availability of the internet in um, rural environments is FCC mapping. And um, the acting head of the FCC now, Jessica Rosenborstel, recently recently announced a new task force to reevaluate how to do proper broadband mapping. Um, what would you like to see come out of that? What do you think is important as far as changes go with how we how we um, gather that data? Well, I, I'm not as much an expert in that area. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, this has been going on for years now. So, yeah. you know, it's a little it's a little odd that we're still talking about it in some ways. You know, there's been disputes over how the data is collected, who collects the data, who funds the collection of the data. Um, right. You know, I don't hear a lot of noise from our customers on this. Uh, I do suspect there's some resistance to disclosing competitive information and the effort that it takes to collect it and report it. But, you know, if broadband is a national imperative, which I think it is, there's a lot of logic behind uh, having good facts and data and, uh, and make good decisions. So I, yeah. I, I think it's a good thing. So um, just to close us out, you know, we've just spent the last year in a pandemic, as I'm sure you know, um, and I am certain that that has uh, hit your um, the companies that you work with, especially hard trying to get people connected to the Internet very quickly. So I'd love to hear maybe a couple of lessons that uh, you all have learned um, and those in your network have learned over the past year about getting people connected to the internet in an expedited fashion and, and maybe how those lessons might be applied um, going forward. Well, the, the world has changed for everyone, for sure. You know, if you'd asked me a year ago, could we 
sell to our customers without seeing them. I would have said it, you know, there's just no way, right. <laughs> you know, just, but somehow we figured out how to sell remotely and deliver remotely and keep networks running and, and all these things. So I think we've all learned a new set of tools that can be applied going forward. You know, having said that, I, I feel, and I think many of the customers I work with feel like we're missing out on something, not having our employees together. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm not on the page of everybody working remotely forever. <laughs> you know, I, I do think there's a hybrid operating model we can take advantage of and we're all going to benefit right. from. But I, for one, am really looking forward to having the team back together a little bit more and, and more innovation from that as well. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you today, Bruce. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I hope that we can connect again in the future. Thank you again, Bruce McClelland, for your time today, and thank you to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.